Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today I'm joined by Matteo Bologna. Matteo is the founder and creative director of MUCA, a design studio in New York. His multidisciplinary background in architecture, graphic design, illustration and typography facilitated his early business successes and inspired his decision to create a New York branding and design agency. Under his lead, Mooka has solved numerous design challenges and created uniquely successful work for global companies like Sephora, Whole Foods, Victoria's Secret, Barnes & Noble, and Target. Matteo, thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start um, by talking really about you because I know you've got an exceptionally broad remit in terms of your design experience. Just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's always difficult to say what we do. I think, you know, the easiest answer is like I'm a designer. But, you know, in broadly speaking, I kind of like, you know, help clients bridge their intention with their audience needs. That's what we practically do. And with our company, you know, we do stuff from brand strategies. You know, we build websites, wayfinding, signage, copywriting, packaging or typefaces. We are really working at 360 degrees. Everyone in our company is an expert at something specific, but they are able to do to go vertically on different um, other um, stuff. Like we have designers who are like amazing copywriters. We have um, logo designers who are amazing strategists. So we try to have also kind of like a flat um, hierarchy in our in our in our studio so that everyone can understand very well what his teammate or her teammate is doing so we our job is you know we're responsible for designing the design of the client audience interaction and making sure that you know we there is a common thread that unites all those pieces. You come from this multidisciplinary background. How does that impact on how your team operates? Um, my background is I never went to school or um, I dropped out from a couple of schools, let's say that, um, from Milan. And uh, my high school was uh, like what they call a vocational high school, was an art school. So I started doing art and architecture since I was 14 and I always loved to draw and the drawing was you know what I did since I was a baby probably I was probably drawing my mother's wound she has tattoos she doesn't know but in her uterus there's tattoos that I made when I was little um you know you know when you're in in a confined space is is boring, so it's kind of like being in prison. You have to make tattoos, and uh, so I continued drawing until I I went to architecture uni uh, university, but I start well I I enrolled to architecture right the same day I got the first commission to the to do an illustration for a magazine, and. Uh, it was way more fun to illustrate than uh, studying architecture. Also, um, apologies to everyone who's an architect, 
but I thought that architects were all a bunch of wankers. That's what you say in, in England. Well, you can um, say that. I, <laughs> okay. Um, especially in Italy, it was very, this was many, many years ago where architects were excessively intellectual. And it was a moment where nobody was building anything. They were just talking about building. So there was this kind of disconnect. Um, and, uh, and then I did one year of sculpture in a, in a Beaux-Arts school in, in Milan. But the freelance work kept, be, kept me very busy and more interested in doing my own things. And after a while, I got bored of doing illustrations and working for art directors. And uh, I started thinking that maybe I should be the art director and be the one who talks to, to the client. And, uh, but I'm not a graphic designer. So I invented myself as a graphic designer. The, the great thing about Italy at the beginning of the 90s is the bar for being a graphic design was extremely low. And uh, I used that opportunity, or I realized that it was an opportunity, once I bought a Mac, which was one of the first Macs running uh, in, in, in Milan at the time. I leased it. It was the equivalent of spending $700 a month in lease, leasing a computer that is less powerful than my iPhone from eight years ago. And, uh, and then I decided that, uh, that I can make graphic design because that's something that I really loved. I was buying all the annuals from coming from the States because at that time, buying books was the equivalent of the internet. I don't know if you know about this. The olden days. So yeah, the olden days. Um, you had to actually leave your house, go to a store that is called Bookstore, spelled B-E-O-O-K something else. And uh, you need to, you look at stuff that are in shelves. If there is something interesting on the spine of the shelf, you read the text, you pull it out, and then you open this object and you browse through this object, not by swiping, but moving these things that are called pages. And I picked a couple of, I remember, I picked a couple of annuals that were coming from America and my brain exploded looking at all these interesting things that people were doing with type and images. I didn't speak English, so it was mostly, you know, like listening to an, an American or an English song and just loving the melody, but without knowing exactly the content. And uh, discovering graphic design through looking at graphic design and having this computer at home that let me copy the stuff that I was seeing and going to people and telling them, you need a business card and I'll design you the business card. This was like the biggest job for me at the time, convincing people to do business cards and uh, learning about type, learning about printing techniques, learning about clients, what they want, what they don't want. And uh, because I was 
I sucked at graphic design because I I was I was not taught about it and but I was able to do it with my computer and automatically people thought that I was a graphic designer just because I had a computer could produce prints with type and images. So I used that to climb a ladder and pretend I was a graphic designer. And uh, all of this knowledge that I acquired then, I'm, I'm using it now. Do you think it's made any difference not having that formal um, university education, design education, in the way you approach your work? In a certain way, yes. I always kind of like bragged about the fact that I never went to school, which is a very stupid thing to, to brag about, I have to say. But I definitely saved, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in uh, education that I was able to, to create on my own. I mean, I spent all those money with a computer, which was probably the equivalent of, you know, a, f- a tuition fee for uh, some students. I wish I had good mentors. That's uh, something that actually I never really had. So I made tons of mistakes, but really, really lots of mistakes. Once I did a, you know, I was a young kid, super happy with this computer. Now I'm a graphic designer, you know, uh, tamping uh, my my chest. I'm so cool. And I got to do a job for Apple. And I was like, the coolest kid in the world, like I thought, of course, um, uh, nobody else knew really what Apple was at the time in, in Italy, because everyone was about PC. But for me, it was a very cool thing. They asked me to do a brochure. And uh, I did this brochure using their font in their brand manual, I was allowed to squeeze the font, which is something that is forbidden nowadays, but at the time was a cool thing. And uh, so proud to have this brochure made. They used this brochure um, at a trade show. And then the guy from Apple calls me a month later and says, uh, we need more of those brochures because we run out of it. Can you tell the printer to print 3,000 more copies? And I was like, of course, yes. And I was ready to... Um, to hang with the phone and the guy was like, but hold a second, this time, can you make sure that page three is before page four? And I was like, okay, I will do that, bye. You know, I was unaware of so many things, like you need to make proofs and make sure that, you know, pages are fa- are, are in a certain sequence. So by making these big mistakes now, I make, I know that I need to make sure that there are really good proofs before proofs before going on press. I mean, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your world of work since you know those days of buying books? You know, we've had aside from an analog to digital change. What are the the things that you um, have noticed that that have had the most impact? I remember uh, I was working for this packaging company and we had to design bottles. So we would, we would use plasticine to, to show the shape of the bottle to the client. And 
the volume was very important because we needed to figure out how many milliliters the bottle was. So we had to take the plasticine, put it in a container that has uh, measurements that was measuring the liquid. And so when the liquid was, when the level was at a certain point, it was the right amount of plasticine that we could use. And then with only with that exact amount of plasticine, we were able to, to make this, these mock-ups. And I've been spending the past, uh, two weeks designing bottles on a 3d software that is super consumer friendly. And I'm like, wow, every time I render something, I'm like, I can't fucking believe it. It's so delicious to have this in your laptop. I don't have to use plasticine anymore. My nails are so clean. And, you know, talking about the um, plasticine, Range Rover and many car companies, they still use ceramics to do their mock-ups. So they do full-scale mock-ups in ceramic to make sure that they get the, you know, the proper finish, the proper shape. Um, shape. And then they use a type of a foil that is uh, removable that they put over so it looks like the real car yeah and if you look at a car is a sculpture it, it always even if it's done with a 3d software it always feels that there is someone who's really it looks like someone really moved some plasticine on top of this this shape with this aerodynamic parts so, and how do you think then communication has changed? I mean, that's, you know, that's the world in which you live. I mean, if I want to make an ad for my product, I just do it now. I mean, while I talk to you, create a PNG and publish it on Instagram. It's like the layers of, the, it's, 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 it's the speed that it's incredible. It's mind blowing. Everything is way more fast. Yeah. And, but do you think that's had a positive or ne negative impact on the way we perceive services or products for services? I have really strong opinions about Instagram and social media, which um, I could express, but it would be, um, we would be censored. Even if this is an un uncensored, uh, podcast uh, you will cut everything that i say about it i no no we won't don't worry <laughs> <laughs> to answer politely i i would say that there's this power this incredible power that if it's used uh, for good it's amazing of being able to really have a um, deep connection between the brand and the and the user and the consumer, it's incredible how you can look at something and feel this love for the idea or for the message that this brand or this person or whatever is communicating. There is a, it becomes a really real physical uh, thing. So, so, so physical that you end up touching the screen to say like. So it creates something that is, or you scroll down and buy. It's, I find it, I find this, all this convenience uh, terrible because uh, the truth is 
you think are, you're buying something, but you're also selling all your actions for someone who's going to make you push more the buy button. And uh, so it's this thing where you are definitely you're for convenience, you, you click buy, but at the same time, you are definitely the product. If we're thinking about luxury and luxury um, is about experiences and about craftsmanship and stuff like stuff like that, what does that do to the word luxury or the luxury experience where you're encouraging people to buy more and more and more stuff? I don't know. I believe that luxury is based on, on this idea of scarcity. If I can get something that is uh, scarce, you say scarce in English, yeah. no? Yes, scarce. Makes me unique. It's my badge. I belong to a tribe. Earlier you were saying that today things are so fast, you could just generate an advert quite quickly, put it up onto whatever social media or other channels you want. Um, people will either click it, like it, or buy it. How does that then, within a lux the luxury domain, how does that fit where you're thinking about exclusivity and this idea of a tribe? I, I think, yes, I, I think, I think, I don't know. I think the, the, it's all in your mind, first of all, because, uh, mm, you know, when, uh, you know, Supreme does these uh, uh, limited product drops, I don't know really how many product they give, but if it's a product drop and maybe they do, they tell you that they do a certain number, but maybe they can make five times what they're telling you and you will never fucking know. You will think that you got the only five pairs of sneakers from that particular DJ. Uh, so it's, let's say that in this case, probably luxury is in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah, and I, th I think to a point that's correct, that's right. But also, I also think that luxury um, brands, and I'm talking about, you know, the, the big companies, not mm -hmm. purveyors of luxury goods, luxury brands need to be held accountable. You know, the s social media gives us a lot of good things, but, you know, we can be incredible liars on social media. And the truth is, sometimes we don't even need to lie. I actually stopped looking at Instagram completely. And that's actually my luxury is not, not, uh, not, uh, not being attached to this machine that makes me spend hours and hours and looking at other people that I start, I want everything that I have. All my designers friends are amazing. They're all better than me. They, I want, I want what they have. I want what they're, I want to be what, who they are the moment that they post that beautiful, whatever they are posting or. So there's this idea of des creating desire. And I don't know how much does this have to do with luxury, but you is this desire wanting something and that is kind of like primordial the moment you show me something i want it in our in our culture if it looks that would fit with my 
the way I see myself wearing it. But it's not always the price that makes the product luxury, is it? Really? No, it's in, in the access. I think the access is also an important thing. So, right. So just going back to what you were talking about, tech and Instagram and social media and stuff like that, we're constantly being bombarded with images of kind of aspirational images from luxury brands. Do you think that it's having a detrimental impact on how we perceive luxury? Oh, yes. In, in what way? Because everyone can have it. That's the thing. The, the truth is, everyone can get it. If, if we look at this, on the web, you can go, you can buy anything. You just have to have the money and press the button. And uh, it's not how much you want, you can spend. It's, it's, I think, I really believe it's how inaccessible is. Because the more, the more inaccessible is, the, the smaller the cohort of people who has it is. And if you want to be part of the cohort, that's your ticket to it. I believe that sometimes luxury can also be feel, you can, I think you can feel luxury. You can feel luxury when you, when you touch an object that is well-designed and uh, you don't definitely needs to own it. You can be in a hotel, like we designed this hotel in, uh, in near Detroit, super fancy, super high end with, uh, uh their art collection is, it's a Saatchi art collection. And just by walking in this space, I mean, you paid I don't know, three, four hundred, five hundred, six hundred dollars, nine hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, doesn't matter. You can spend the same amount of money that I'm spending. But walking around this space and looking at all these things and then touching the car that we designed, because we are super cool, of course, uh, that is made with certain particular materials, these tactile um, feelings are making you really feel luxury you feel that while you're touching this object that has this interesting texture you're touched by by luxury so it's 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 really feeling special it's a moment where you feel unique right so i'm going to pick you up on something that you mm -hmm. said earlier so how can it then because that's accessible you know, mm -hmm. anybody can go into that hotel, you can touch it, you can feel it, it's an amazing experience. But how do you reconcile that with something being luxurious and rare or scarce? It's, it's a part of your beliefs. Okay. You know, I, and also, it's, I think it's also a um, it's part of economics. If I can go to a hotel, and for me, $300, it's a lot of money for a room and I do it and I splurge, it's an incredible, I feel that everything around in my surroundings is uh, luxurious. It's, I, 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 I don't know if luxury is giving a gift to yourself in a certain way. It's a very, it's something that it says, okay, I'm gonna spend that extra money and then I want to believe that that thing, it's unique. 
I like that idea of is luxury giving a gift um, to yourself because that is a slight, it, it takes on a slightly different nuanced meaning of how we interpret luxury on a personal level. And, and I believe it's all, it's all an, an, uh, an illusion or self-delusion in a certain way because uh, we are not King Charles, or I don't remember which king was, you know, that is sending ships to South America and brings back this incredible um, dyes to make cloth red that no one else has. It's the only red in the whole world. And to get that particular color for his clothes and his peers, so again, a, a small tribe, they spend the equivalent of billions of dollars to have that unique thing. Uh, now we, uh, we have accessibility. We can all get that right color. And in a certain way, I think it's up to, up to the brand to tell a story that makes us feel that that's a unique uh, piece of clothing. Yeah, because on your um, on your website, you mention, I mean, one of the taglines is changing strangers into devotees. Because mm -hmm. that re um, kind of resonates, doesn't it, with um, kind of this luxury brand market. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's a way to, it's how we make brands to connect with our with or their audiences. For instance, there's a thing that I always say about uh, mm, typefaces. We design a lot of custom typefaces for our clients and uh, we um, always tell them that uh, we, we, the reason why we tell them that they need to have their own custom typeface, we make this example. Let's say that in this podcast, you have four guests. They're all British. And uh, one of them has a very big baritone voice. Every time he speaks, you can tell that it's him. But the other people more or less have the same kind of voice. And they are all talking about the same, the same topic. So when you listen to the podcast, you don't know exactly who's speaking, except except for the moment that you see, you hear the voice of this guy. Then let's say that, that tomorrow you're in line for your coffee in the, in the coffee shop and three people behind you, you hear this big baritone voice. You have no idea what he's saying, but immediately you have a connection with this, with this voice. And that's why we believe that, for instance, having your own typeface, it's very important because if everyone picks the same typefaces, you need to make an extra effort as a, as a consumer to understand who's talking. Instead, let's say that you are driving fast and there's a billboard and the typeface is there. You cannot really read the billboard, but just the presence of the typeface, it's a hint that it's, 
that belongs to, to, to that brand. And it's a level that is subconscious because nobody really can understand uh, the shape of a typeface, but the way the typeface is set based on the brand guidelines that are established, and if they're used well by the, the company, in the messaging, that is kind of like a visible structure of the brand communication. Visible slash invisible. Uh, it's a very subtle thing. So you, you can say whatever you want with this big voice and automatically you know that it's my brand. And then you can choose the right copy for this big voice. And uh, like in Italy, there is this thing that all the movies are dubbed. And the most ridiculous thing is that often there are famous actors that are dubbed by the same Italian actor. So you can have Brad Pitt and George Clooney dubbed by the, by the same actor. And it's like, really, they are two different brands and they're using the same font that to me, it's like so fucking stupid. It's a waste of their resources. So, th th sorry, the, the point for that was that once you have a custom font, of course, you can really fine tune the level of a sophistication of your brain based on, you know, what the zeitgeist tell you, you know, um, if a font with very thin serifs tells you that this, that's a luxury brand, you will use a font with very thin serifs. If it's a font that is bold and chunky, then you use it to sell burgers at, uh, cheap burgers. You say that, however, over the past, I think, three or four years, many of those big luxury brands have moved away from those iconic typefaces that they used to use. Yves Saint Laurent is one. And they've gone to the standard black block type um, typefaces, which all look the same. Because they're a bunch of wankers. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because they, they're... I have no fucking idea why they did that. Maybe they make more money by doing by looking like their competitors because they I really don't understand why. There's no reason for me to have done something like that. It's a design thing, isn't it? You think, well, the whole point of designing something is like you're saying to be in kind of have some sense of individuality. Apparently, everything that I think doesn't make any it's not true because when these companies start looking like a computer company it, everything goes from their brain to their product probably it's when the product is more important than the logo that it's on 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 their on their on their label i really don't understand why they made those decisions it doesn't make any logical sense. Why do you want to look like your competitor? Burberry and Yves Saint Laurent. Which one is which? You can only tell the difference by reading the words. And I don't understand their strategic decision. I find it... Mm, I find that maybe someone one day said, 
came in and said, okay, we have to do something different. Let's, let's not be the company that has a long history because this long history is not very important for us. Let's, let's look like H and no, actually H and M is a mm, script name. Um, let's look like uh, a, mm, a cat, <laughs> anyone else. Yeah. Like, like Apple. Let's look like Apple. Let's use a black sans serif, a medium-sized sans serif typeface. I mean, to be honest, sorry, I'm, I'm going to probably make more enemies here. That it's would be not... the assumption you've already got enemies. Oh, yeah, plenty of enemies. Oh, right. Death threats every day. <laughs> I have, I have uh, bodyguards. The Zara logo, it's like... Again, that's another logo that goes against any design rules. And then again, maybe I'm, I believe that there are supposed rules, that there are rules that are supposed to be uh, followed. The letters that are interlocking with a very thin uh, typography that for a company that has to have that logo printed on a label in the back of a shirt, for millions of products, why would you make a font that has um, parts of the letter, a font, a logo that has part of the shapes that are so thin that when you have to make a label, you cannot even see them because the thread of the label is too thick. It's kind of like designing something, that logo designed for a low resolution monitor you will see only the thick lines and not the thin lines. These are, you know, the things that as a type designer who also designs logo or a logo designer who's also design type makes me fucking crazy. Because it's like designing something without really thinking about how the output is. And just, you know, I'm a famous designer. This is my idea, get it. Oh, we have the logo that is made by this famous designer which by the way is an amazing uh, designer. And so in that case, maybe it's more important who made the logo than the look of the logo. What does your design process kind of feel like? We usually have it set in, in a pretty standardized um, way nowadays after all these years in operation. We have as a certain number of workshops with our clients, regardless if it's a, a packaging project or a, a branding project. And uh, we, so we have a discovery phase, which is asking a lot of questions. And uh, it's kind of like a, often uh, our clients think that it's like therapy for them. So, and then we do workshops where we really ask a lot of questions. We really dig into the, the deepest, their deepest needs, the deepest, the darkest part of their brand psyche. And differently from a, a psychologist, we actually give them solutions. They don't wait, we don't wait for them to come up with a solution. But of course, uh, we, the, the final result is one thing that we call the brand platform, which we show to them. And uh, it's a bunch of rules that are 
determine what the brand is and what the brand stands for with their pillars, their tone of voice and uh, their purpose, their whys. And uh, of course, we come up with a, a verbal way to define their brand, but that comes all from their intentions. Of course, we, can, we, we cannot create something that doesn't exist. So we make sure that this document is a, it's, it's a document that is done together. They sign off on every word that comes out. And, and then we use this document to create all the brand aspects. Let's say that their tone of voice should be um, happy, uh, energetic, and uh, exciting. We will never show them a logo that is black on black very small, of course, or a name that doesn't have that, uh, um, give that excitement. And so once we have this brand platform, it's also something that they use internally to communicate to their, to their um, teams. Every time a branding project or a rebranding project it's made, it needs to be always going towards us, we, we, we use the brand platform to design and follow the brand platform. They need to use the brand platform to communicate, to uh, use it as, as something that is actionable for their um, employees. And also it needs to be used so that the communication between them and uh, their customers is clear. Yeah. And so what's the what's one of the most exciting um, brand propositions you've done? There's this company that we love. It's 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 I'm sorry for all our other clients. <laughs> uh, I love all my all, uh, we we never we rarely have clients that we don't like. We there's something that we decide from the, we all decide from the beginning. It's kind of like uh, going to a, a date, a blind date at the beginning. If it doesn't work at the beginning, it will never go. So we are making sure that we don't keep relationship that have the first date that is kind of like tepid. So um, we have this company who, and, and sometimes it's easier to work with companies who have really, really great ideas. This company, it's called Farmer's Fridge. They're based in Chicago, and uh, they their mission is to bring good food to as many people as possible at a affordable price. So they invented invented they retrofitted vending machines and they put salads in it. So they have these refrigerated vending machines with salads in uh, jars. And every day when the salad is not fresh, the remaining salads are given to, to food pantries. And uh, that was really, really an amazing project because we ended up working from the brand strategy, the rebrand strategy, because they needed to rebrand because they uh, were looking for a new round of investment. So they wanted to go to the new investors with a better uh, looking brand. 
And uh, so we went, we didn't do the naming. I wish we did because that name is fantastic. And, but it was great because we ended up designing the actual machine with them. And uh, which by the way, we forbid them to call it the machine. It's called a fridge. So th there was a jar in their office that every time someone would call it a machine, they had to put a dollar in it. Because it's a fridge and the idea, uh, and, and they're expanding everywhere. And this, so this, this, their idea is to have these fridges positions in what, it's, what they're called food deserts. Places where you have only McDonald's or um, this other, can we say shitty companies that are giving shit food to people? Is, sure, you can, can we say do what that? you want. Okay. <laughs> Delicious food, I have to say, but evil. And so the idea is to have these this, this fridges in, in areas where you have only shit food. But they could be in hospitals or in big offices or in, uh, in, the, in, in, in stores. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a brain that we are really had fun working on it and gives meaning to the design that we're doing. I wanted to end our chat, as I always do with um, all my guests, and ask you what your luxury is. What is my luxury? My luxury is JOMO which is the opposite of FOMO, is the joy of missing out, is not feeling pressure to be part of a certain tribe. I think it's, it's kind of like the anti-luxury. It's being able to not feel pressured by being under pressure of being in groups that I kind of like and I should be in, but I cannot, I can also make the decision not to belong to. And I think that's an amazing, that's the biggest, the biggest luxury that I can have. Not having to go out and meet people that you don't really want to meet. That's the best thing ever. Thank you, Matteo. Thank you to our partners, Intellect Books. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can listen to all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening platform or at inpursuitofluxury.com. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. <laughs>